Before we jump into the sermon today, I have a couple just uh, really important, exciting updates for you in, in the life of our church. One, some of you are hardcore Disney people, hardcore Disneyland people, and you're aware that there's a tradition during the Christmas season um, at Disneyland where choirs come together and sing songs of Christmas and they proclaim the Christmas story, the, the scriptural story of Christmas. And, and next Saturday, um, our choir, a, a group of them, about 60 of them from our choir, were invited to be a part of that. And I'm really proud of our choir and I want to thank them for... And you have to be a very hardcore Disneyland person to be able to get on a Saturday on your pass. So. Um, I doubt any of you will really be there, um, but I'm going to be there because I was invited to come and the boys are thrilled and, and we'll be there cheering on the choir. There's two performances at 5.30 and at 7.30 at Disneyland, so if you're in the neighborhood, come by and support our choir. Second, it is December 1st, which um, we just uh, heard a song about waiting is over, and for some of you, the waiting is over. Our, our former senior pastor is officially done with his sabbatical and he is back and around. And so if you see him and his wife, Chris, know that they belong. It's allowed. Like, you should be okay with this. In fact, they were here last week because they just had to be here for, for many reasons. But uh, with our son being baptized, he is a significant part of our son's life. And so is Chris. And so he's here somewhere. I think he was at the earlier service. But know that he's around. And let me be super clear. He works for me. Okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That, kind of... Uh, but it's very reduced, so have very similar good expectations. This is an exciting thing for us to have Greg and Chris back. I'm thrilled. So if they're in this room, welcome home. We are so glad that you're back. We are so glad that you're back. Oh, they don't like this today? All right. Well, as we jump into this first week of Advent, uh, I guess I, I'm recognizing that we all embrace this season differently. I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks, and I, I think there's at least three main categories in which we come into Christmas. As some of you, you walk into a room like this, the, the trees are up, the garland, the lights, and you are, you're like over the top right now. You generally go through life uh, in a very positive way. You generally go through life uh, having a lot of joy, and there's something about this time of year where for you, it's just like joy on joy. And you are overflowing because now everybody else is invited in at some level. It's okay to decorate. It's okay to sing. It's okay to smile, to greet with Merry Christmas. And so you love this time of year. And it's just you are over the moon, super excited about it. There's a lot of us that are like that. There's another category. There's some of us who are, you know, we don't, we don't dislike this season, but it wouldn't be like our favorite season. But we enjoy it. And, and if we were to come up with a word, if I was to come up with a word for you, uh, that would be Christmas is helpful. Because there's something about the next 30 days or so in which we're reminded that there are good things in life. That there's real joy to be experienced. That we can walk into spaces and rooms and be filled with a, a certain kind of energy and a certain kind of excitement and celebration that isn't as present throughout the rest of the year. And so we get to the Christmas time and, and, and it's helpful for us because it reminds us. It reminds us that there are good things in life and it's good to celebrate and it's good to smile and it's good to sing these songs. So we've got some of you just over the top. Some of you, this is a helpful season. And then, quite honestly, for many of you, this is a really painful season. 
And that pain might have even started on Thursday for some of you. As you were at Thanksgiving, and there was somebody who wasn't around the table this year, who should be. Or there was no one around your table, and you were alone. That there's something about this particular season that triggers in many of us the reality that that life hasn't really worked out the way we've hoped it would. Or that the pains that we've experienced in life are significant and it feels like we look at everybody else celebrating. Everybody else with their, with their Christmas clothes on and with the joy of Christmas and we feel like an outsider. We don't know how to tap into that because that's just not our story. That's not where we are. And, and there's probably lots of other divisions of the way we come to Christmas. And the reality is for many of us, we don't fit neatly into these categories. So the joy on joy people, you probably have moments of pain and sadness. And the people who are experiencing pain and sadness, you can find it helpful. But these are three kind of just general ways in which we experience the season of Christmas. No matter where you are in those categories or across the spectrum, It's been our prayer, my prayer, that this would be a Christmas of significance for us at Lake Avenue Church. That this would be a season in which we don't just put up decorations, sing the songs that we normally sing, try to ignore the categories in which we are in, but that there'd be something significant that would happen in our hearts, that there would be something significant that would happen in the life of our church, that during this time of year that affords itself to great joy and celebration, that we would interact with Jesus in a significant way. In many ways, my prayer is that Jesus and Christmas would become bigger. That, it would, that he would become bigger to those of you who are over the top, that there's even more. That Jesus comes to give us life to the full, and as full as you feel right now, there's even more filling. For those of you who feel like this season is helpful, that that maybe there'd be something so transformative about these next 30 days that after Christmas and Advent that you would experience a transformed life a little bit longer this year beyond Christmas. And for those of you in pain, my prayer would be that Jesus would be so much bigger that he would sense his very presence with you in the midst of your pain. Not rushing you out of it, not trying to minimize it, but thick with you, sitting with you in the midst, and that that companionship and friendship and relationship that Jesus offers, that would just be something so much deeper and bigger for you this Christmas. For many of us who find ourselves in church at Christmas, for those of us who follow Jesus, the reality is that during this season, we live these kind of dualistic lives. There's the church Christmas, and then there's the public Christmas. Right, Church Christmas is where we come to spaces like this and we sing certain carols and we remind ourselves with pithy statements like there's a reason for the season and we need to remember Christ and Christmas and, and it's all about the Bible and it's all about Jesus and in many ways the way that this is perpetuated among people who are filled with faith and follow Jesus is this is a way we engage Christmas mostly with our minds. Some with our hearts, but mostly with our minds. A discipline that in the midst of all of this that's happening in the world, that that it's really about Jesus, and it it can be a discipline. Public Christmas seems to get all the fun sometimes. right? Public Christmas, there's tree lightings, and there's sales, and there's wrapping paper, 
And it has the saints of Bing Crosby and Mariah Carey that are a part of public Christmas. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you just need to admit that we live these kind of dualistic realities this time of year. Where we can come and very specifically come to church or come to a gathering among people who share our faith and we can be reminded of Jesus and we can be profoundly reflective. For those of you who are parents like we are, this is a hard season to know how to parent. How do we center on the main thing and yet engage in the joy and the celebration that public Christmas has? But many of us are going to leave this space today pick up our computers tomorrow, and Cyber Monday is going to consume us. Because we've got presence on mind, and we need to get this done, and we need, and the rain really messed up, right? We didn't get your Christmas lights up yet because of the rain. And we need to get all these things, and we get, 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 move, 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 and we can find ourselves just kind of mindlessly going through this season with these bifurcated lives where I have my religious self that celebrates the Jesus of Christmas, but Monday to Friday, it's public Christmas. It's all the parties and the sales and the shopping and the whole nine. No matter where we are even in this dualistic reality of Christmas, the same prayer is present that I believe there's a bigger Christmas to experience even in the public space. And I think there's a deeper and more reflective and more beautiful Christmas to experience even in the church Christmas space. We need a little Christmas. That, that's our sermon series. That's our title for the next five weeks. Because no matter where you are in the spectrum or where you are with the church and public, each one of us need Christmas. And each one of us need a significant encounter with God this Christmas. In the Bible, there's, uh, we have some choices when it comes to this time of year. Choices of who can help us, which authors, which texts can help us this time of year to come into contact with significance, to come into contact with the reality of, of the Son of God coming into this world. And in the Gospels, there's four Gospels, there, there's different perspectives. My son right now, my oldest son, is super into Marvel, and it seems like every other day he's telling me about another, quote, origin story. This is where Spider-Man came from, and this is where I like to tell him Superman just to frustrate him, because he goes, that's not Marvel, Dad, but I love doing it all the time. But all these origin stories, where did these superheroes come from? And the scriptures give us four accounts that give us a sense of an, the origin story of Jesus. A friend of mine, Scott Kenworthy, who I've met through, my, uh, through school, good friend, he's a pastor in Kentucky, he had such a helpful, pithy way to summarize the four different origin perspectives of the Bible. Matthew, the book of Matthew, gives us the family tree of Jesus and spends time giving an in-depth look at Mary and Joseph. That's Matthew's perspective of where Christmas and Jesus comes from. Mark actually starts with the ministry of Jesus. It's not because he's uninterested in the birth of Jesus, but Mark's perspective is getting us to the cross as quickly as possible. Luke has the most in-depth historical account with great details of all that happened in and around the birth of Jesus. And then there's John. And John is where we are going to be for the next many weeks together. And John takes a completely different approach than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason we've selected John is because John isn't so interested in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. John is more interested in communicating the significance of the events of Jesus. 
and in our search as a church, it's our search, I pray, as individuals for significance this Christmas season. John is a perfect guide for us. John, some background on him, he was an eyewitness. He had an eyewitness account of Jesus. He was a disciple. And the text will tell us that John was particularly close with Jesus. He was a good friend of Jesus. And John writes his account not as some ode to a biography of his buddy Jesus, but John writes his gospel for one reason and one reason only. And he tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, when he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I'm just going to let you know up front, especially if you're visiting with us, invite you to join us in this journey. We're not coming to the text to just find an origin story of Jesus because that's good information, although it's beautiful information. But that we are coming to the book of John and coming to the scriptures believing that what we can experience is transformation. That what we can experience by understanding a little bit more about Jesus this time of year as we dive into this text that we might actually come to find faith to experience a bigger Jesus than the Jesus we know now. So we're going to be slowly digesting just the first 18 verses in the book of John. And John's an interesting book for many of you. you have, uh, you've read this over and over again. You know, this, you know these stories. You know these words. And, and the one commentator said, the interesting thing about the book of John, it's kind of deep and clear like rare water. Some of you have been to Tahoe. And you know that one of Tahoe's kind of, uh, what they tout is, right, we have the clearest, deepest water ever that you can see further down into the water in Tahoe than you can in other bodies of water. It's not cloudy. It's not murky. It's clear. And, and John, and what we're going to do over the next many weeks, just in 18 verses, I think what you're going to come to see is just like the water of Tahoe, that the Gospel of John gives us this clarity, but it's also profoundly deep. Which means this, which means no matter how much you have come to read the Gospel of John or not, no matter how much you know Jesus or not, if you've been following Jesus for 40 years, or if you are considering following Jesus, even if you're not considering following Jesus, that what we're going to do over the next many weeks is get a very clear picture of who God is through Jesus, and, and it will invite each one of us into that deeper, deeper connection, that bigger connection, that experience of significance this Christmas. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We'll just be in John chapter 1, the first three verses today. And I know I told you it was clear, and I'm going to read it, and some of you are going to go, I'm already tapped out, Jeff. It did not feel clear, but don't worry. Hang with me. We'll get there. John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. This is the Word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Now, a quick word on the word word, okay? Here's the truth. This is significant. I want to tell you all you need to know today to understand what John is saying when he said in the beginning was the word. 
what he means is, the word is, is a name for Jesus. He is saying, I'm talking about Jesus here. And the reason we know this is if you go to verse 14, it says that the same word would become flesh and dwell among us. So one way you can understand this scripture is to read it that in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing has been made, was made that has been made. The, the word, word in this text, we just need to understand he's talking about Jesus. When we get to verse 14, I think in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a really deep dive on the significance as to why John is using this word to describe Jesus. What, what does this mean? What's the fullness of that? But for right now, what, you just need to know he's talking about Jesus. And, and what's so interesting is that John, and we'll see in a moment, John is starting Jesus a little bit further, a lot further back than verse 14. In verse 14 is when he said, and the same word will become, became flesh. That's the, that's the Christmas morning moment in the book of John. When the word becomes flesh. But there's 13 more verses that John is pushing back further than any other account of Jesus. Because he's trying to communicate something significant. There's three truths I want you to see that hopefully will, will highlight some new realities about God or remind you of some things about God and Jesus this morning. But more than just information, I pray that you would tap into the significance as to why John used the language he used, what this text is saying, and what it means for our lives. So here's the first observation, the first truth. I want you to note, this is a shocking start. John starts his gospel in a shocked in a shocking and stunning kind of way for those who are reading. I mean, you should see this if you know your scriptures, that he actually starts his gospel with the exact same words that Genesis starts in. In the beginning. In the beginning. Now, to the, the listener, to the student of the word of God, to understand this new covenant, this Jesus who has come, for, for John to be using the exact same language as Genesis would have been wildly shocking and stunning. The problem is, it's not as shocking and stunning for many of us. It's just interesting. But we have to see that this is a, a stunning and shocking way to start an account of Jesus. He's locating Jesus at the moments of creation. That means that when we read Genesis, according to John, Jesus was there. Jesus didn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem. Jesus has, there has never been a time in which Jesus hasn't been. There has never been a time in which Jesus was not. Now this is shocking. This should stun his readers. John is coming out fast. He's coming out quick. He's coming out strong. It's as if he's read Matthew and Luke. And he said, I know you've read these accounts of Jesus that, that talk about Mary and Joseph. And I know they're shocking because they are. Right When you read this account uh, of Mary being, uh, becoming pregnant through the angel of the Lord and, and the Mary and Joseph journey and then no room in the inn and then Jesus is born in a manger and then there's a star and there's shepherds and there's angels. I mean, that is a shocking story in and of itself. It's also a shocking story when we read the lineage of Jesus in the accounts of Luke that go back further and further, right, and say from the line of David, this person has been promised and this Savior is being born. That's shocking in and of itself, of a God who has orchestrated this Messiah over time, fulfilling his promise, shocking. 
But John backs up Jesus to creation. John is suggesting that in the beginning, the same way the world was formed, Jesus was there. So why is this important? This is important because for the audience in John and for us today, we have to understand that Jesus coming into this world was not an afterthought of God after creation became. It's not like somewhere after Genesis, God looked at what he made and said, boy, we've got a big problem here. We got, I got to find a way. I got to create a new way. This, there's, but I think sometimes this is how we come to understand God, that when God created the world in the beginning, it was God. And then he created human beings and the relationship went wrong and sin entered the world. And now we've got a big problem and God's up there scratching his head going, I have an idea, a Messiah. I'll just bring a Messiah. No, no, this, there's no plan B here. This is plan A. Jesus being located in creation communicates that from the beginning of time that Jesus wasn't a reactionary plan of God. He was the proactive plan of God. 1 Peter 1.20 says it this way. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So the significance of this shocking start, the significance is that from the beginning of creation, yours and my sake was on God's mind. Jesus didn't come just because we're so deeply flawed and now there's this big problem. Jesus was always planned for. Christmas was always part of the plan. That at the beginning of time, that Jesus was aware of what was going to happen. And that Jesus and God aren't reactionary to the things that happen for us, that they're proactive. And this is shocking. Jesus has always been, he's always been a part of the plan of God, his proactive, loving, and purposeful plan from the start. Now this is a, a shocking start, because when we truly reflect on this, when we can locate Jesus at creation, when we read Genesis and see Jesus creating waters, creating humankind, creating animals, extending relationship to Adam and Eve, when we, sin, when we can locate Jesus there, it makes Jesus coming in the form of a baby, coming that same Jesus who created the world, humbling himself and becoming flesh and becoming a baby, it makes it even all the more mind-blowing of what God was doing and who Jesus is. When we truly reflect on this, we realize that Jesus has always been. It's the crazy, shocking part of the story that the same Jesus who created the universe would come into human form to live and to dwell and to love. That's the scandal of Christmas. That the, the God of creation entered the world as his creation to live and dwell among us. It's a shocking beginning, John, and I hope that it's a shocking reality for us. There's two more truths in these three verses. The next one is notice in verse 2. Jesus is always in relationship. We've already seen this in verse 1, but verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. See, this is one of these short verses that can be incredibly deep, but it's also so incredibly clear. 
This is the reality of what we're starting to see. For those of us who follow Jesus, we understand that the Godhead of our faith is, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this kind of language, this kind of description in John is starting to, to build a theology around that. That the, the Father and the Son are in relationship. That God and Jesus are in this, this unified Godhead. It's incredibly deep to understand, but it's also very simple. And it's what sets Christianity apart from all the other religions, is the God who desires relationship with their creation, a God that exists within relationship with themselves. The relationship of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this dynamic relationship that our God experiences with himself, is not only a marker of who our God is, but that creation from the very beginning, from Genesis and now in John, that creation itself of this Godhead has been invited into this relationship, that we can have relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the God of this world exists for and in relationship. So we can see the reality of the kind of God we have in Jesus always living in relationship, living in relationship with God, the relationship of the Godhead. But as we continue to read and as we continue to read John, we will see that this same God who exists in relationship with himself also exists in relationship with his creation. So the significance of this is that we have a God of relationship, and in Christmas, and in Jesus coming to this world, and at Jesus at the beginning, communicates this reality that the living God exists in relationship with his people. We have, we have big theological words that capture this reality. We, we talk about the word transcendence and eminence. Transcendence being this above and beyond the God relationship, the reality of God enjoying relationship with himself. God above the creation. But also we have a, a word of eminence. The idea of God being near. The God not creating a relationship from afar and watching it work from a distance, but a God who at Christmas we celebrate and we remember God coming down in the form of the creation. To live among the creation. To sacrifice for the creation. To be in relationship with his creation. Eminence, transcendence. This is the kind of Jesus we have. And what cuts through both of those qualities, both of those adjectives, is relationship. Westminster Catechism gets to this in question 21, when the question says, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man, and so was, and continues to be, God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. I mean, this is, we, we looked at like six words in verse 2. Westminster Catechism needed a couple sentences to capture the reality that in Jesus there's this dualness. There's this existing in relation, just transcendent relationship with the Father, but this eminent relationship with the creation. This is significant Jesus has and always will and exist, exist in relationship. And there should be a tension for those of us who follow Jesus. This is something we can intellectually know and cite like in a catechism, but it's something that honestly is really hard to wrap our minds around consistently. 
And what ends up happening for those of us who are sincere about following Jesus is we go back and forth of communing with God in that transcendent way and then communing with God in this in intimate way, this eminent way. And it's a really hard tension to balance, especially at Christmas. Like, how do we connect in relationship with a God who is above the creation? And how do we have relationship with a God that, that is right here with his creation? The songs go back and forth. The traditions go back and forth. But there, it should be a tension for us because it's a struggle. When you and I overemphasize the divinity of Jesus, what we get is a God who is so far away from his people. When we overemphasize the divinity of Jesus, we can see a God who is powerful and mighty, but very distant from the creation. And, and when we... When we, uh, when we overemphasize the humanity of Jesus at the expense of the divinity, we have, a, we have a Jesus who can sit with us in our pain. We have a friendship. But without tapping into the reality of the divinity, we have a friend with no real power. We have a God who understands our pain but isn't really capable of doing much about it. Or we have a God so far removed from us, I don't know if he can understand our pain. And like any great relationship, I pray you've had one, a real relationship can sit in the tension of all of this, of the transcendence and the eminence. But this is Jesus, always in relationship. We see it in John. We will see it time and time again. We see it at creation. And we'll see it here. One in relationship with his father and in relationship with his creation. And Christmas, Christmas is about his relentless pursuit of our relationship with him. Christmas is the opportunity to, to understand that God comes down. That God comes in the form of a child to live and to dwell among us so that we can have relationship with God. So we have a shocking start, a Jesus who is always in relationship, and finally, a Jesus who's always creating. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been. So I know this might sound redundant because we've touched on some of this already, but from the beginning, from the beginning in Genesis and in the creating work that is going to continue in the book of John, we have a, a Jesus who is all about creating and recreating, making and remaking. In Genesis, we see him forming the world, forming humankind, forming it all. And in John, what we're going to see is him reforming, recreating recapturing, creating a new way for people to experience God. I love how Colossians captures this in chapter 1, 15 and 16. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And I want you to hear this. All things have been created through him and for him. All things have been created through him and for him. His nature, the nature of Jesus, is to create. And to create, he will. Recreate a way for us to have a relationship with God. Remake our very lives so that we look more like him. This is where the relational reality of God comes to bear in the, in the creating and recreating realities of Jesus. All things have been created through him and for him. The significance of this truth is this. It's you he's created. 
You have been created by Jesus for Jesus. You might be searching for why you exist. You might be searching for why you are here on this earth and you have spent hours reflecting on your earthly parents, your biology, researching your family tree and your ancestry. But here's the crazy shocking thing about Christmas is you have a shocking start too. That your beginning is bigger than you often will give credit for. Your beginning goes back to the beginning of creation when Jesus created you for himself by himself. And so Christmas, yes, Christmas is a time where we remember the, the word becoming flesh. And it's about Jesus coming to this earth. But in some sense, Christmas is also about you. Christmas is also about me. Because you were created by Jesus for Jesus. I was created for Jesus by Jesus. And Christmas is the time in which we can sense the shocking beginning, not only of Jesus, but the shocking beginning of who we are and who we were made to be. And so this week, I hope many of you would take this challenge, as hard as it will be for many of you, is that when you look in the mirror, look at yourself and say, I was created by Jesus for Jesus. That Christmas is a time where we put up lights and celebrate and sing God coming in the form of a human being into this world because I was made for Jesus by Jesus. Because my relationship with God mattered so much. And the relational Jesus extends relationship, creates a way for you to have relationship at Christmas. See, when we know why we exist, for what reason we live, for who we exist for, it changes everything. It brings significance to our life. It takes something that we do annually and makes it bigger. And not bigger meaning more Christmas lights, but bigger and deeper in our hearts and our lives. So as we go into this week, I want to offer a couple uh, reflection questions for you to think about and hopefully talk about even as you go to lunch today. And the first question is, when's the last time you were shocked at Christmas? And I'm not talking about when you got the present you wanted as a kid. No, I mean, like, when, when is, like, the origin story of Jesus blown you away? When is the reality that, that Jesus has always been blow your mind when, when has the last Christmas been where where you read the stories of Matthew Mark Luke and John and and you're breathless because of because of its shocking and stunning truths when, when's the last time Christmas wasn't didn't go exactly as you planned because you've just been struck by the power of God see the prayer is for significance the prayer is for Christmas and Jesus to be bigger than ever. And I would contend that this would be a great year for Jesus to shock you a little bit. This would be a great year to be stunned by the reality that you were created for Jesus, by Jesus. And to let these truths of this time of year to sink so deeply into your soul, so deeply into your being, that it would all change. So that maybe you forget to do a couple errands you used to do this time of year because you just need to sit in the reality of what all this is about. I hope a lot of you get shocked and stunned this year at Christmas.
Second question, can Christmas, can these next many days, weeks, actually push you towards relationship with Jesus? I think they can. I, I think this time of year has so many demands on so many of us. So many, so many evenings, concerts. If you have kids, it's endless. And then we've got a church here where we've got you, we want you to do things too. And we can almost go through this season with this kind of robotic redundancy. Like, what are we doing this weekend? Okay, Friday we have the company party, and Saturday we need to get that thing over to the church, and then we have worship, and then we have my family. And we can just go through this season with this kind of robotic redundancy. And all of a sudden it comes and goes, and the only time we prayed was when we were sitting in these pews. The only time we considered the truths of the scriptures is when they were being taught to us in church. And I think these next many weeks are a great opportunity to, to experience intimacy with Jesus. To carve out in your day, amidst all the other things you have going on, time for relationship with God. Especially if Christmas is painful for you. You know there's an eminent God. There's a God who is near, who came to earth gave us his Holy Spirit, present with us, so that in the depths of our pain, the depths of our loneliness, relationship is present and offered. If public Christmas just feels crazy to you, there's a way to be at a tree lighting and experience the light of the world. There's a way to let this season draw us into intimacy with God. So may this be a year to experience intimacy with Jesus, to commune with God, a Jesus who is transcendent above us but near us and eminent. And finally, where do you need a remaking work in your life? Where do we need a remaking work in our world? And might that be something worthy of putting on your Christmas list? Instead of thinking about and answering the questions for family of what they need to get you, maybe the the list in your life looks a little bit more like, Lord, heal our land. Maybe the Christmas list this year is being more aware of the other people's pain around you, looking for opportunities to allow the creator Jesus to recreate his world, to recreate your own life. Some of you need a reworking work in your life right now. Because some of you come into this space all about Jesus, but Monday when you get to work, Jesus is the furthest thing from your mind. Some of that's because the pressure of your life and job. Some of that is because the clear choices you make in your life. This would be a great year to put on your Christmas list. Jesus, I know that you're about recreating. I need a recreating work in my life this Christmas. So it's not about the stuff, but it's about the soul. Once a year, many of us come to Christmas the same as we have in the years past. We even come to church the same as we have in years past. So we need a little Christmas. But as I've said, my prayer for you and for me is that Jesus would become bigger this Christmas. John will show us over and over again over the next couple of weeks just how massive Jesus is, how significant him coming to this world is and the implications and the meaning and the purpose of all of this so he'll be a great guide for us but I'm also reminded of this interaction in the Chronicles of Narnia many of you are fans you know there's this interaction with Lucy and Aslan Aslan is the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia 
So Aslan, being the Jesus figure in the story, says this, and I love this dialogue. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Lake Avenue Church, may this be the year in which we find Christmas bigger. May this be the year in which you are walking with God in such a way that Jesus becomes bigger. So that if you're a joy-on-joy person, you're over the top that your joy would be rooted even deeper than it is right now. If you're the kind of person where Christmas is helpful, I pray that it would be more than helpful. It would be transformative. And if you are a person where this is a deeply painful time of year, that you would experience the comfort and the friendship of the living God who came into this world to live and dwell among us so that we might have life. Father, we need your help. Everything around us points to a a certain way of doing Christmas, even in the church. The scriptures we read, the things that we do, the events that we come to, everything inside, Father, points us to one particular way of doing Christmas. And I pray for myself and for my friends who are here today that this Christmas would be different, that this would be a Christmas in which we experience you in such a way that you and this season would be bigger than it ever has been before. Not because you have become bigger, but because we've grown in our desire to follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we have a time of communion, this is the first Sunday of Advent, and it's the week of hope. And I couldn't think of a better, well, I couldn't think of a better way to light this. There we go. A better text that might point to us for hope. I mean, the hope that's found in having a bigger beginning than what we think. The hope that's found in having a relationship with the living God. The hope that is found in a God who is about creating a way for us to exist and to recreate our whole being to be more part and the kind of person he's made us to be. What great hope we have looked at in this text. But we also find hope around this table. This is the first Sunday of the month where we have communion together. I'll invite our stewards to come forward and to prepare the tables. And this is a meal in which Jesus, when he was with his disciples, he shared this meal with them and he told us, told them to keep coming back to this meal so that we can be reminded because I think God knows, he fully knows what it means to be human, that we're very forgetful people. And we need to come back to this meal to remember the high price and cost for the freedom that we have in Christ. And so on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he passed it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you, take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup, this wine, this is the new covenant, the new agreement. And this time, this agreement's in the shedding of my my blood. So take and drink for the forgiveness of sin. And then he instructs them and why we do this today. He said, come to this meal often. Remember me often. Because it's my broken body and my shed blood that creates a way for relationship with God.